This is The Guardian. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online. But one man, he's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock? From The Guardian, I'm showing Tyler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Listen to all episodes now. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, there was a pretty big event in the science world, the Breakthrough Prizes. Described by their Silicon Valley founders as the Oscars of science. And whilst they might not be quite as glitzy and glamorous, the prize is rather showy. Three million dollars to each of the winners. Of those honoured this year were scientists who uncovered the cause of the serious and mysterious sleep disorder, narcolepsy. Their work has paved the way for new medicines, which could change the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world. So today we hear from one of the winners about breeding narcoleptic dogs, how this led them to the cause of narcolepsy in humans, and what this all has to do with the flu. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Professor Emmanuel Mignon, I'm so pleased you could join us because I'm sure you're very busy. And I've got to say, first off, congratulations on winning the Breakthrough Prize. How did it feel when you found out you'd won? I mean, completely exhilarating, of course. In fact, the person who told me the news, she called me and I was driving. I said, oh, I'm driving to my lab. And she said, oh, you should park. 
of course, it was a great moment. <laughs> I can imagine that you were on cloud nine at that point. Now, you were awarded for your work uncovering the cause of narcolepsy. But before we get to that, you know, I'm curious because most of us will only know narcolepsy from TV or film where someone just suddenly falls asleep at usually the most inopportune time. But what actually is narcolepsy? Among the most important symptoms is uh, going very quickly into dreaming sleep or REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. So they may have hallucinations. They fall asleep and suddenly they see monsters or things that don't exist. Or their dreams can be extremely vivid. I had many patients with narcolepsy tell me, for example, that they dreamt that someone enters their, their house and broke through a window or something. And they were convinced in the morning that this had happened. And sometimes these patients fall asleep and they are paralyzed just like during dreaming, but they're still awake. And there's a most weird symptom. It's when patients get emotionally excited, usually when they're laughing, joking. You know, this is the most typical. They think of something funny and suddenly they lose muscle tone and they may just like bob in the head or sometimes they fall down to the ground. But generally, they just feel a bit atonic. That's called cataplexy. And about 50% of narcolepsy cases start at children. The onset is devastating. It's very abrupt. And then they have these falls. They gain a lot of weight. They sleep all the time. They become little monsters because they become like two years old. They start to do tantrums, etc. And if you don't diagnose them and treat them quickly, you really waste their life. I mean, this is a very important uh, population. As you were describing all of that, I could really understand why this was such an appealing thing to investigate at a time when no one knew what caused narcolepsy. This was back in the late 1980s after you'd moved to Stanford University from France. And so when did you begin to uncover some clues as to what was going on? Huh, that was tough. I mean, like 15 years after. <laughs> I got interested in narcolepsy because I knew that it was tractable. You know, there's another important thing about I think being a good researcher is you have to ask the right question and you have to know that there is an answer to find. Was this disease appeared to me like having a single cause and also we had a narcoleptic dog colony. Before I came at Stanford, they had found that dogs can have narcolepsy. And, you know, of course, dogs sleep all the time, so it's, it's a little harder to show that they're actually more tired than normal dogs, but they are. You know, we have, I have a pet who is narcolepsy myself. His name is Watson, and he's super cute, by the way. But the most visible is when he gets excited, he often would, like, feel paralyzed. And in humans, it's laughing, joking, being happy about something. In dogs, it's getting good food. Uh, so that's the most typical. That must be very frustrating for Watson. Delicious food in front of him and <laughs> he paralyzes. Absolutely. But don't worry, he succeeds eventually. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know it, it's very important. So these dogs had these particularities is they had a genetic form of narcolepsy. In humans, it starts suddenly and it doesn't have a strong genetic basis. There is a genetic basis, a genetic predisposing factor. But in dogs, it was purely genetic. So when you bred two narcoleptic dogs, they all developed narcolepsy. So I knew that somewhere in the genome of these dogs, there were one 
a little change in the DNA sequence that was sufficient to cause all the symptoms of narcolepsy. Step me through what you found. It's very simple. In the dogs, it's really a mutation for a receptor for a molecule that's called orexin or hypocretin. So you can imagine that the brain is full of these molecules that floats and, and transmit information from one cell to the next. And they release neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, and this one is called orexin. And the cell receives the information through another big molecule that's called a receptor. It's not unlike a key and a lock. The key kind of is sent between the, the neurons and then it goes into the lock and activates the, the receptor and then it produces an effect in the next cell. When we discovered the, the gene for narcolepsy in dogs, it was basically the lock that was broken, was not working. So the orexin was released, but it was not doing anything. That's why they had narcolepsy. So this lock and key, this neuroreceptor and orexin, what role do they normally play in our bodies and brains? Ah, super good question. There are two main functions, it looks like. So one of them is definitely to allow you to stay awake when you're a little sleep deprived. So when you wake up in the morning, you have no sleep debt, you know, you're just rested. And what happens is as you stay awake more than one hour or two hours, you know, then you start to have a sleep debt because you, you have not slept for one or two hours. And the orexin kicks in to help you to stay awake, even so you are kind of a little sleep deprived. In fact, the orexin kind of seems to build up all through the day. And the second uh, thing, it then it decreases during the night. And then it allows you to release all your sleep debt. That's why the first part of your sleep is really a lot of what we call non-REM sleep, where you have these big waves and your brain kind of rest. And then it goes down very, very, very low. And then when it's extremely low in the second part of your night, then you start to dream a lot. Right. So just to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, you've got orexin or hypocretin, and this is a chemical messenger that helps to regulate our sleep and wake cycles. And it builds up during the day to keep us awake. And then we lose it during the night so that we can sleep properly. And at this point in your research, you'd discovered that for dogs, there was a genetic issue causing the receptor, the lock, to malfunction so that it wasn't doing anything with the key, the orexin. You've pinpointed the mechanism. You know that something was going wrong with it in humans. What did you do next? So in humans, the next thing we did was to look if the lock was broken, but we didn't find anything, which was not surprising. What we found is that it's a key that was missing. So that was really incredibly exciting when we discovered that. I mean, we did that by measuring the levels of these orexin molecules in the cerebrospinal fluid. So we had a few patients, we did a lumbar puncture. We kind of could measure the levels very easily in people who didn't have narcolepsy. And in every subject that had narcolepsy, the levels were zero. So it was clearly the cause. The cause was that the little orexin molecules was not being produced. really is an incredible discovery to have made. And now you're sharing the Breakthrough Prize with another professor, Masashi Yanagasawa, and he also investigates sleep. How did his work at the time feed into what you'd found? It's quite amazing. It happens almost at the same time. 
So initially, he really thought that this molecule was very important to increase food intake, to increase your appetite. And the reason was that this little chemical is mostly produced in the hypothalamus, which is an area of the brain that's very important to regulate body weight. But then this led to nowhere. And after a while, you know, he kind of removed the orexin chemical in a mouse. And he realized that this mouse was behaving bizarrely and seems to go into this kind of sleep stages. And about at the same time we're discovering this, he discovered, he made the hypothesis that they had narcolepsy. That was kind of really fun because, you know, it's almost immediate confirmation of my finding, you know. Since both of your discoveries, through this research, there's been a growing body of evidence that narcolepsy is actually an immune disorder. I mean, that's so fascinating. So just take me through the theory of how a problem with our immune systems would cause narcolepsy. So the immune system has developed a very complex system of recognition of all this external agent as bad or good and allows to keep them in check. And it's such a complex system that sometimes it makes a mistake. Instead of just fighting a virus and a bacteria, it starts to attack your own self. And this is a group of diseases that are called autoimmune diseases. Lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, and type 1 diabetes is very close to narcolepsy, where you have these insulin-producing cells that somehow are attacked by the immune system, and then it kills them like if they were foreign. And uh, that's what happened in narcolepsy. The immune system makes a mistake, and it seems to confuse the cells that produce orexin with the flu. And we know that because it seems like narcolepsy is often triggered by the flu. In fact, there were a big increase in rates of narcolepsy around 2009 with the swine flu. And the immune system probably in some people fights the flu in this very specific way that starts to make a mistake and attacks the orexin cells and then you develop narcolepsy. That's fascinating. And in the case of diabetes, we can counteract the damage from the immune system by giving people insulin could there be an equivalent for narcolepsy? Yes, and that's where the fun starts. You know, I mean, it took a very long time. For me, it's frustrating. Uh, but now there are a couple of drugs that have been developed that do, in fact, act like the apocretin or the orexin and go into the brain. So people had to invent molecules that looked like orexin, like a, a key that was kind of smaller, but still could like activate the receptor. And it is miraculous. It kind of reverses all the symptoms of narcolepsy. So it's very exciting. Unfortunately, the drugs that have been tried have not been able to be fully developed because in one case, they had side effects on the liver for one or two, a few patients. But my patients were in heaven. I mean, they said, my God, this is completely different from anything I've been having before. So I really think that in the next five years, uh, narcolepsy will be treatable like type 1 diabetes and it will be... Uh, very well controlled by this new medication. Thinking towards the future, what else are you interested in looking at? Are there any other mysteries around sleep and narcolepsy that you still want to explore? Oh, many, many, many. <laughs> but I would say that 
One of the key questions that remains to be answered is what is really the nature of sleep debt? If you don't sleep, you feel more and more tired, right? And I explained that the orexin is one of the way you, f you fight this kind of sleepiness because you, you are not sleeping. But we really don't know what in the brain produces this being tired. And I think it would help a lot of people if we could take a blood sample and measure certain things and say, oh, this person is sleep deprived. That's why they're tired or their sleep is not good quality. So we should increase their sleep. Or this person is tired because their wake is not enough. It's really an exciting time for science. In fact, uh, I hope that a lot of listeners will, if they are younger, will go into science because it's just a lot of fun. And there's, there's an enormous amount to discover right now because the tools we have are just amazing. Emmanuel, I'm sure after hearing that, lots of our listeners will be feeling very inspired. So thank you so much for coming on and congratulations again. No, it was it's a real pleasure. And uh, again, thank you so much for your congratulations. I, I'm certainly in heaven right now. Thanks again to Professor Emmanuel Mignon. You can find a link to my co-host Ian Sample's piece on this and the other breakthrough prizes on the podcast webpage, at theguardian.com. Now, before you go, if you didn't catch the trailer at the start of this episode, then I really want to recommend the new Guardian podcast series, Can I Tell You a Secret? It's about a cyber stalker who wreaked havoc online and why he did it. And I binged the whole lot over the weekend, so I can promise you it's such a brilliant listen. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. The producer was me, Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. And the executive producer was Danielle Stevens. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>